morning, everyone. Sort of small but mighty this morning. Probably traveling folks have something to do with that. We're going to start a little differently. I want you to grab your, uh, you know, your announcement thingy. Maybe you jot notes here. Take that out for a minute. And I want you to answer the question. Just jot down a couple sentences or phrases. I want you to answer this question. Who are you? Who are you? How would you put that into a few phrases or a couple sentences? So I'm going to give you a second. I want you to just jot some things down. And then we're going to set it aside. And then we're going to come back to it at the very end, okay? Who are you? Take a minute. Jot down some thoughts. Take a few minutes or a few seconds here and wrap things up. Who are you? As they used to say back when I was in school, pencils down. <laughs> Heads up. Okay. Was that easy? I don't see any resounding yeses. <laughs> Some, okay. Anyone brave enough to read a phrase or a, just a bit of what they wrote? And if not, that's okay. But anyone brave enough to just shout out something that they wrote down about who they are? Child of God. Good. Husband, father, friend. Good. Dutiful son. There you go. Sinner. Okay. Other things. Adopted son. Okay, good. Imperfect but trying? I like that. All valid answers. Son of God. There's another one. I love this. Okay, I want you to keep that piece of paper, hold on to it, and reflect on it as we go through this. Some of you might have written down uh, something about your roots, maybe where you're born. That might have been part of your who you are. Some of you might have written down uh, to whom you were born, sort of your ancestry. I'm the son of so-and-so, or I come from this line of this family. Some of you might have mentioned your work, what your job, what your vocation is, perhaps. Uh, maybe some of you mentioned interests or passions. Don't know. Um, I heard some familial phrases there. 
you know, being a father, being a mother, being a sister, brother, a spouse, something along those lines. I heard some of those relational connections. Some of you mentioned your faith in some way. Heard that, right? I'm a Christian, or I'm a son of God, or I'm, I'm this, or I'm that. These are prime examples, all of these, of how we define ourselves. All these areas seek to address identity. Identity, which we are going to talk about ad nauseum today. Identity. Who am I? That's a big question, right? And often reflects the things that we value the most. Who am I? In our epistle reading today, I don't usually preach on the epistle, but today I couldn't resist. Paul takes on this question of identity, Romans 1, 1 to 7. I would definitely encourage you to get in your Bible for this one because it is a dense little passage and we're going to just truck through it. And I want us to carefully observe how Paul answers that question of identity, who am I? Who am I? A little context and background, okay? Gospel has, not, has already made it to Rome. It beat Paul to the punch. And Paul, though a Roman citizen by birth, he's writing to a church he hasn't met yet. Very unusual for him, okay? He has not met the church in Rome yet, but that's who he's writing to. So a little bit unusual. Now, adding to this dynamic... Paul's letters were a little odd and puzzling, at least by first century standards, maybe not by ours. I say that because, um, let's just say by their standards, he was rather long-winded. <laughs> long, long, long letters, especially Romans, which is the longest of all his epistles. Let me give you an example. A typical introduction to a letter like this would have like, it'd be a one sentence. A sender, here's who it's from, here's who it's to, and here's a brief and greetings. Just a brief one sentence thing. Uh, instead, Paul spends um, <clears throat> seven verses, and it's one long sentence the way we render it, introducing himself. Why is that? Well, uh, part of it is, as I've said, he hasn't met these folks. He doesn't know them, so he's introducing himself to the church in Rome. It's probably why his credentials come up front. But I think Paul does far more than this. He speaks deeply of his identity in Christ and of the identity of the Christians living in Rome at that time. Identity is the drum he will bang throughout this passage, and identity, as I said before, is what we're focusing on today. Verse 1. You ready? Let's track. Track with me. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the good news of God. What's in a name? Paul. No, no longer Saul. That's his Hebrew name. When he was converted, his name was changed to Paul. Anybody know what that means? Small. <laughs> small. Get that. Uh, mark of humility? Maybe, perhaps. Paul is a Latin name. This might have helped him travel about to spread the gospel. It's more universal than the Hebrew name Saul is. And given his call to minister to the Gentiles and given his former life, this might make sense to become small in order that the gospel might spread to all nations. Paul is small. Now, regardless, when someone is named or when they're like renamed in Scripture, we have to pay attention to it. It is always a notable thing. And a name in Scripture always um, connotes identity. It does. More specifically, it almost always has to do with the calling God places on someone's life. A name more than suggests sort of a life destiny, a life trajectory. Abram becomes who? Abraham. Jacob becomes who? Israel. And Saul becomes Paul. 
What's in a name? Well, quite a bit, scripturally. So Paul, small. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul can use a couple words here for servant, diakonos or doulos, right? Both imply service. But doulos, which is what he chooses, is the more humble and the lowly of the two. Slave is a more accurate translation of it. And Paul is saying simply, I, look, I'm a man under authority. I, I have a master that I serve. And he's patterning this after a familiar Old Testament phrase, which you might say, a slave of Yahweh or a servant of Yahweh. And the meaning is clear. His life is one of devotion, not demotion, although you could make the case, <laughs> downward mobility, devotion, humility, and obedience. And his master is Christ Jesus, as he says here. Jesus' official Messianic title. I don't think you get more clear than that. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Still in verse 1. Our callings come from the Lord, right? They're always a product of God's divine initiative. So we don't choose our callings in the ways that we might a profession. Um, God chooses our callings, the same as he chooses the gifts of the Spirit that he gives to us. Pardon me. We obviously don't choose uh, gifts of the Spirit either. Uh, the Lord gives those to us, right? And the Holy Spirit reinforces and confirms the call that God has on us. So I didn't choose to be a priest. I didn't choose that. God uh, chose that for me. It wasn't my idea to echo the Scriptures. To some it's given to be apostles, some evangelists, some teachers, uh, dot, 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 dot. God called Abraham in Genesis 12. God called Moses in Exodus 3. God called the prophets. Paul's calling was to be an apostle, to be a message bearer. Apostle means sent ones, sent out ones. And the apostles were those privileged, blessed to see Jesus in the flesh. And they were chosen by Jesus to carry on his work. They had a unique uh, role. So Paul is amongst those appointed by Jesus himself to be like the founding fathers, founding folks of the church. This gives Paul a unique authority within the church apostolic authority. It's the same authority our bishops exercise within the church. Let me give you a quote about Paul's calling here. One author says it this way, all the rich and diversified gifts of Paul's heritage, Jewish, Greek, Roman, together with his upbringing, were foreordained by God with a view to his apostolic service. Here's what I want you to get from this. Apparently, God knows what he's doing and orchestrating everything in our lives into the raw material, which is calling. It's all fair game, okay? Nothing is wasted in God's economy. Nothing. Paul's life and calling show us that. So Paul's call is servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the good news, i.e. the gospel of God. Folks, this is the language of holiness. And probably a further definition of this called piece, what it means to be an apostle. Apostle, this gospel is Paul's charge. It's his lifeblood. Paul didn't set himself apart. God did, right? Can't really take credit for God's choices, can you? There's no room for spiritual pride here. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 1.15 that God set him apart before he was even born. Yeah, I'd go a step further. I think this is theologically safe. And say that God had these intentions before the foundations of the world, before time began, right? You think the same might be true of you? I think so. Paul's call to apostleship means that the gospel was his charge and his lifeblood. So let's give a quick overview. That's just one verse. Paul's already told us a lot about himself. Verse 1 begins to answer that question, who are you? 
identity. Now notice, everything Paul has said relates back directly to God and the story the Lord is writing. His identity refers and reflects the Lord. Who are you? Well, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the good news of God. Okay, No braggadocio here, no plugs about his former life or appeals to his accomplishments as Saul, which were numerous and respectable in certain circles. There are a lot of ways to answer this question of identity. Who are you? There's a lot of ways that the world answers it and gets it wrong. Uh, think of this, and this is sort of cliche, but it makes the point. Uh, most men confuse this question of who are you with what they do to earn a living, right? At core, who are you? You might say, well, I'm a this, I'm a that, I, I, I'm a lawyer, no, I'm a mechanic, no, I, uh, I'm a gardener, I'm this, I'm that. These are all fine, but at core, that's not what it's all about. That's just what you do to earn money. It may overlap with your vocation and calling. Paul's introduction, my point here, his who, I, who, I, who am I, his identity statement, is nothing he can claim as his own. It's not his idea. All is focused on what the Lord has done for him and who the Lord has called him to be. So I could sort of stop right there and say that'll preach, and it does, but we're going to keep going, okay? We're going to see what else Paul's going to teach us. That'll preach. Verse 2, what about this gospel of God? What about this, this good news, this gospel which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scripture? This is just one way of saying the gospel wasn't some sort of biblical innovation that Jesus cooked up. Okay? The gospel, the good news, which means, means mainly God-saving sinners, okay, is a story that God has been telling since the fall in Genesis 3. It's an old story. His saving work might culminate and come to full expression in Jesus, which it does. That's the high point. That's the crescendo in the Scriptures. But this gospel was not sort of just vaguely foreshadowed. Uh, it was promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. Example, think of Abram. God promised to make a great nation out of him, to bless all the families of the earth through him. Can't you see the gospel continuity there? Right? The mission of God began long before Jesus came on the scene. It was promised of long ago. And Paul will actually, incidentally, build on this throughout Romans later. But that's for another sermon and another time. Verses 3 and 4. Who is this gospel about? Well, Paul's going to get very specific here. Concerning his son. Here is the subject matter of the gospel of God. The son is direct, indisputable proof of God's desire to save us. There's no gospel without the Son. <laughs> no gospel without the Son. Let's hear a bit more about this Son. He's from the line or the seed of David, some translations say. This gives us sort of his earthly lineage, gives us his earthly bio, meaning he's an Israelite, meaning he's from the line of kings. The shoot of Jesse, David's father. The Messiah was promised to come through David's line. Okay? There's a bit of his earthly lineage and bio. A son according to the flesh. Maybe a confusing phrase, but it's actually, uh, when we unpack it, it's not too confusing. Flesh here is, is a term Paul uses a lot, isn't it? Flesh. Uh, and what he's stressing here is, is human existence, something that's, that's fragile, something that's transitory. So in becoming human, this son, this Jesus, took on all our fragile 
uh, transitory humanity and, and all that that meant. Okay? Jesus took that on. We have a Savior who fully identifies with our humanity. Think of Hebrews 4.15. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So three really underscores Jesus' full humanity, okay? his royal lineage, his full humanity anchored in history. Still speaking of the Son, moving forward, uh, appointed or designated, some translations say, the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. We've got to unpack that. There's a lot in there. Now we're getting into Jesus' spiritual lineage, his authority, his heavenly origins. Jesus is not only fully human, descending from the line of David, but fully divine. And we have to talk about both of those when we're talking about Jesus' true identity. Designated or appointed to be the Son of God in power. Jesus is designated or appointed as the supreme ruler of the cosmos. So here's how you need to think of this. This is the King of Kings. This is Christ the Pantocrator. If you can think of that old icon, the picture here is it's the coronation of Jesus as king. That's what you should have in your mind, him ruling, sitting at God the Father's right hand, full recognition of his work on the cross. Ergo, the phrase, the Son of God in power, tells us this. He's not only the Messiah, he's King Jesus, King of glory. We heard about that earlier in our psalm reading, who rules and reigns. And the event that predicates this royal coronation is his resurrection little ahead of myself that comes up a little later in this passage. Okay, the Son of God in power, King Jesus. According to the spirit of holiness, got to be honest, there's a lot of debate on how to best interpret this phrase because it's not common, but I'm just going to cut to the chase and tell you that the best way to conceive of it is simply the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the Holy Spirit. It signifies the Holy Spirit's necessary, critical involvement in the life of Christ. Notice, the Holy Spirit himself testifies to the Son's identity. He magnifies and glorifies the Son of God in power. And as Romans 8 tells us later, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Our rescue was a full Trinitarian effort. According to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, here we are. Okay, The Son demonstrates and demonstrated, I should say, his power even prior to the resurrection. There are many miracles Jesus did, right? Over demons, he exercised authority there. Over sickness, over nature, even over death itself, John 11. But the ultimate miracle was yet to come, and that was the resurrection, and that is the linchpin of our faith. The Son's resurrection, and I wish I could unpack this fully, but I can't, but I want you to remember it. The Son's resurrection authenticates his heavenly appointment as king. The Son's resurrection authenticates his heavenly appointment as king. Key component of the identity of the Son. And who, I've already told you really, you've been paying attention, you probably know the answer, but Paul sort of waits to tell us, and who is this Son of God he's speaking about? Who is the one in whom the gospel holds together? End of verse 4. Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul has already said a lot, but he's about to say even more. Jesus his earthly name, Christ, the divine title, meaning anointed one, and then Lord, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Greek word for Lord is kurios, and most Jewish Christians equated that name with Yahweh. Remember that from the Old Testament? Yahweh, 
That was the holy, unpronounceable name of God in the Old Testament. So the point Paul's making, Christ is not just a man. He is the great I am. He is the Messiah. I mean, identity, folks. Identity, identity, identity. Just look at the titles Paul has used of Jesus in four short verses. Son of God, Seed of David, Messiah, Lord. Big defining things. This gospel, which Paul serves and is called to propagate, is about Jesus, human and divine, God incarnate. No gospel without him at the center. He is Lord. Now, identity seems pretty darn important to Paul. And that's only four verses. <laughs> Which some of you are like, I'm already tired. It is one sentence. It is a bit of a workout. I'll give you that. Paul begins with Jesus Christ, his master, in verse 1. And he ends verse 4 with that same master, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In introducing himself, Paul simply cannot define his life outside of the person and work of Jesus. Can't do it. Folks, that'll preach. But he's not finished with us yet. Let's move to verse 5. In 5 and 6, we're going to get more into Jesus' identity, more how it relates back to these Roman Christians he's writing to. In 5, you've got a lot of prepositional phrases, and here's how you need to think about those. Everyone ties back to Jesus the Son. Everything relates back to him. It's a train of descriptors, and they're all bound to Christ. So, through whom, the aforementioned Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship. Grace, as I hope you know, is a glorious free gift. It's something we receive. I should say, I think it's the gift we struggle to receive because our human nature would rather buy it or try to buy it or pay for it, or earn it, or be worthy of it, or pay penance for it, whatever, okay? <laughs> Grace is a scandal to us. The cost is too high, so Jesus himself, he covers the tab. Now notice, Grace had eluded, hear my wording, Saul his entire life. <laughs> Grace had eluded him, though he believed he was a devout, righteous man pursuing God. But somehow he missed it. How was that possible? With grace, the point is realizing that God has long pursued us. That by the time we turn around and encounter the Lord and say, oh, there you are. When we first uh, have that moment of clarity of being on a search ourselves, we turn around to find that God is already there, having followed us the whole way. <laughs> that is grace. That is grace. Grace literally found Saul on the road to Damascus in the person of Jesus. So here is this grace he has received and with that grace came Paul's call to apostleship. Notice the connection there, identity and calling. Incredibly connected. So with that grace came Paul's call to apostleship. Now, that might not be your call. That's fine. But you do have a calling, and it does fit into the body somehow, right? In some way, shape, or form. And Paul's particular calling was, was to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to all nations. Grace leads us to calling. Okay, grace leads us to calling. In order, I'm picking up again, uh, this is verses 5 and 6. Uh, in order to bring about the obedience of faith for his namesake among the nations. A lot of phrases bound together there. And this really is a sermon in and of itself, but I'm going to spare you that because you only need one. Uh, obedience and faith are the key words, I think, here. And they each help us to sort of interpret the other. 
Okay? Faith invites of us obedience, does it not? Right? And obedience beckons from us faith. There's a connection there. They're like two sides of the same spiritual coin. So by grace, Paul's calling as an apostle is to bring about this obedience and this faith within the life of the church, okay? To shepherd the church unto all this stuff, all for the glory of Jesus, that's his namesake, and among all nations, the mission of God for Jews and Gentiles, i.e. the whole world. So Paul's specific calling being especially to the Gentiles. Verse 6, including you, which is y'all, including y'all who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul's saying, by the way, that's you. That's you, my Roman brothers and sisters. You're Gentiles. That's you. So even though Paul didn't found this church in Rome, he nevertheless speaks with his apostolic authority to them because of the call God gave him. So he's speaking to them. And he tells the Roman church something really important at the outset, I would say. They are, and here's the quote from the scripture, they're called to belong to Jesus. Man, I love that. That's the first thing he says about them. You're called to belong to Jesus. That is an identity statement. I mean, talk about a life goal. What's your faith all about? What if the first thing you wrote was to belong to the Lord, to be his, to be his fully and completely? They're called to belong to Jesus. This is an, another identity statement, huge. So verses 1 to 6, they show us that Paul is all about God's business and God's kingdom, okay? He introduces himself. He fully addresses that. Who are you? Identity question. And he focuses not on himself, but on the Lord. It is almost as if Paul is saying, who am I? I really can't answer that with first answering, who is Jesus? <laughs> I can't answer who am I without first saying, who is the Lord? Who is he? He cannot answer the question without saying that, which I love. There's something wonderful and incredible and true about that. Final verse. Who is Paul writing to more specifically? You know the answer, but he's going to tease it out for us a little bit here. To all in Rome, men and women, who are beloved of God, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, everyone, and called to be saints, holy ones. There's some Old Testament echoes here. Paul's more than implying that these Roman Christians are now part of God's chosen people, echoing God's call to Israel in the Old Testament. So these Roman Christians, they're children of the new covenant. They're beloved of God, okay? Let me talk about saints a little bit, because this can be misunderstood, and I want to demystify it just a little bit. In the New Testament, the word for saints is almost always, almost always plural. Plural. The holy ones, the set-apart ones. And the picture here is it's a community dedicated to the Lord, not these individual super-Christians, which we can think of saints as. And when you hear saints, the focus isn't necessarily on behavior, lest we reduce this to moralism. The focus here on being a saint is just your status with God. You're standing with the Lord. Those who are being sanctified by the Lord, those who belong to Him, those who are His saints, that's how they're defined. It isn't a behavioral thing. It's a status thing. Now, saints, this is one of Paul's favorite words to describe every one of the various churches, to the saints in Colossae, to the saints in Galatia. And saints, again, aren't just like those really holy people. Those are the saints. I'm just sort of an ordinary Christian. No. 
More often than not, saints is a term to describe an ordinary community of disciples. So every one of us here, saints. Saints, every one of us, right? Paul summons them to be set apart for the Lord. We are all saints by divine vocation. Call just like Paul, no difference, just different roles in the body. And he ends with this lovely benediction, which we often use as a blessing in the Anglican Church. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, and we render that entire passage as one sentence. <laughs> so if you were to diagram the sentence, good luck. Have fun with that. I couldn't do it. Get your sheet of paper back out. Let's go back to my original question of who are you? Has Paul redefined that question for you at all? Give me a head nod if you're like, okay, I got some spots in there I need to fill in. Did Paul redefine that at all for you? Write down the things you would add to that. How would you change it? Take a couple seconds and do that. Who are you? How has this passage redefined that question for you? Maybe it showed you something that was missing. Something you need to edit. Something you need to add. Take a minute and write down, given what we've seen, how Paul answers this identity question, who are you? How does that change it for you? Who are you? Take a couple seconds to do that. And then we're going to move into a second closing question. Who are you? What defines you? God has answered that question in Christ Jesus, has he not? How it looks for you, how you phrase it, there's going to be different nuances. But that question has been answered. Okay, second question, final one. With identity comes calling. With identity comes calling. So, um, and this may be an easier one to answer, I don't know. Uh, what's your call? What is your call? What has God given you to do? Notice how many times does some version of the word call appear in this passage? I haven't counted up, but a lot of repetition there. What's your call? Well, what's God given you to do? There's no magic answer to this. Your answers are going to be all over the shop. That's good. What's your call? Paul, he was called to be an apostle. Some of you might be called to that. What's your calling? If you're not sure... Look for the places in your life where your passions and gifts intersect with the needs and hurts of the world. The classic definition of calling. Where do your passions, where do your gifts intersect with the needs and the hurts of the world? Probably something of calling in there for you. Do those places require faith and risk of you? Good. <laughs> that's, in some ways, that's a gold star. That might be God's uh, confirmation, and that's where you need to be. So what's your call? What has God given you to do? And again, that springs forth from the identity question. We can't jump to calling without going to identity first. Who are you in Christ Jesus? Therefore, what has he called you to do?